Cheers. You bet. All right. I'm here with David Kotak. We are at the eponymous Camp Kotak. David, thank you so much for having me up here. What does Camp Kotak mean to you? Take us back to the history. What when? What was the first instance before it was called Camp Kotak? Well, actually, the first nickname was given to us by John Hilsenrath when he was a reporter on covering the Fed, I think, or markets, I don't remember. Um, and he was here for a couple of days. And he nicknamed us the Shadow Kansas City Fed Retreat. First thing wrong with that is it's five words. Second thing wrong is try to create an acronym out of the Shadow Kansas City Fed Retreat. There are no vowels. So you can imagine what happened to that. But John tried. It did make the Wall Street Journal article about the place, which and the trip in the group, which of course added to some notoriety. Before 9-11, we were a couple of guys going out in the woods to go fishing for the weekend and talk about the world without distraction. And I would invite some friends from NBEEC or, or NABE or National Association for Business Economics or National Business Economics Issues Council. I shouldn't use acronyms. Some of your listeners may not know them. Or other organizations. I'd say, come up to Maine. We sit. We go fishing. We have a drink. We talk. And we don't have distractions. <clears throat> Most of the answers were, go up there, do all that, go that far. I don't fish, you know. So fish, fishing, I like to joke and say, people who now come here used to think of fishing as walking through Central Park to buy some smoked salmon at Zabar's. Okay? Things are different now. 9-11, many of us who were survivors in the South Tower at the NABE convention had a reunion uh, some number of months following the 9-11 events. And several said to me, Stu Hoffman, who was here, Harvey Rosenblum, who at the time was director of research at the Atlanta Fed, uh, at the uh, Dallas Fed. Others, Bob Eisenbeis, my colleague, who was at the Atlanta Fed, and others, they said, you know, I think I'll go with you next year. So 9-11 took it from a handful of people to a group, changed the character. And over the years, we've evolved discussions and whether we should hold them for the record or off the record. <clears throat> over the years, we've had, uh, um, I would say, important guests whose titles were governor or senator or Federal Reserve president or whatever, um, we have so far avoided making it a conference. So as you know, Jack, there is no PowerPoint. There are no slides. It's mostly informal. People can express themselves. If they want to do so privately, it's respected. Uh, once or twice over the years that was violated, but not very often, and respected. 
So we, that's the, the nature of the group. I think that makes it a little unusual. Um, we try to assemble diverse views. You've seen that. You've been in the thick of the debate. And that's the character of what we do. Fishing is one of the things we do. But as you know, we do a whole lot of things. And I think that the fishing is a nice thing for those who like to do it. But coming to a place which is preserved, and this is a pretty pristine watershed, as you've experienced, because of the land trust, which you now know about, and the Passamaquoddy Indian Reservation land, uh, which you've had the chance to visit several times. So you think about it, you've got hundreds of thousands of acres of woods and water and fish and hiking trails and wildlife. And there's not many places where that exists anymore. So I think that's the chemistry of it. I should say, how did we get the name Camp Kotar? Yes. I did not create an eponymous name. And having got to know you a, a little bit over the past few days, you don't strike to seem the type of person to do that. Well, I, I didn't do this one. <laughs> so we're out on the deck here next to the lodge. And I was standing on the deck with Steve Leisman, who was up here. CNBC had a truck and they were covering it one time. They've come a couple times. Bloomberg has others, as you know. And it's 8.30 in the morning, and they go to commercial break. We've got a live truck, but we have no monitor. So we have no idea what's happening or what people are seeing. All we know is we've got an earpiece and a microphone. When we went back live, unbeknownst to the two of us, the control room at CNBC or somebody had put up a banner, and the banner was running across the bottom of the screen, screen saying Camp Kotak. Oh. We didn't know it. Mm. Becky, when we went live again, said, how are things at Camp Kotak? Well, we didn't know what she was talking about. We thought it was joking around. Meanwhile, the viewers of CNBC are all seeing Camp Kotak, Camp yeah. Kotak. And if you see something on CNBC that says Camp Kotak, it's, well, yeah, they, it yeah. must be called Camp Kotak. So we had a one-minute chat about fishing, and sh uh, there was a Camp Kotak mentioned a couple of times, but more importantly, it's this banners running across the bottom of the screen. We were the last two people on the planet to know, and that's how the name came about, and it stuck. And was this the year that S&P 500 downgraded the U.S. Treasury? Or is no, that, another that year? was a different, okay. that was a Bloomberg year. Okay. 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 So, <clears throat> and that was, an, that was really another coincidental story. At the end of the driveway, which you can see, Bloomberg was here, Mike McKee was here, and they were covering uh, the employment report release at 8.30, and then everybody was going to go out and fish uh, where we go in the lakes on Friday and have lunch there. They had a live truck. The live truck had to pull all the way up to the end of the driveway to get the satellite shot between the trees. So we finished. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. People are headed out. Somebody pulled a car in right in front of the lodge and blocked the live truck. And as you know, you can't get out of there if you're blocked in 
and because of that big rock on the other side. So the bottom line was the guys running the live truck were stuck here all day. The lodge gave them some lunch, and they, they had to hang out till somebody could move the car. The person who had the keys to the car locked the car and was out fishing on the lake. So 4.30, 5 o'clock, the announcement comes on the downgrade by S&P. Bloomberg is looking for that truck to send them back here because they got a whole bunch of people who can do interviews for them. Economists, investors. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're all assembled in yeah. one place, yeah. but they can't find the truck. Well, there's a reason they can't find the truck. It's sitting there. It's not three hours away. So one thing led to another. As soon as the folks found out the truck was here, the uh, executive producer said, fire up that truck. And Bloomberg had a real scoop because they were able to go live from here for five hours on a Friday night after the downgrade. And then, and then McKee... Uh, McKee it was a Friday night and no one else was available. It was Friday no. night, but that's okay. And, and you got everybody in one yeah. place. So McKee wow. was out here. You know, he was. we were about to start the lobster dinner, which you've experienced. Mm -hmm. And Mike is summoned. Fire up that truck. And here's... So he never got to eat the lobster. He was too busy asking questions. And neither did the other guys. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what went on on, 9 uh, on September in 2011. So I, I feel like in investing, there's always so much going on. And especially now, it's very easy to be aware of every single event. You know, probably 50 companies are announcing earnings every single day. There's macroeconomic data. Fed speakers are talking. The bond market, the stock market, commodities are always moving up and down. Can you speak to maybe how that... In some regards, obviously, it's good to be informed, but it can be a little distracting and how it can be refreshing, perhaps, and helpful to withdraw a little bit and sometimes go fishing and talk about things on a much more zoomed out level rather than just following every single piece of economic minutia. Well, I think there's something attached to the instant data flow, which you've described, and that is that both financial media and clients and their consultants want instant analysis and response, which isn't thoughtful. And my, my sense is not the comprehensive way in which information is distributed. That's good. I like to be able to be fully informed as fast as the next person and as accurately. And I think most people feel that way. It's the instant response. Something happens. There's an immediate email. Can you be on the show tonight? That happened with me, with the Fitch downgrade, mm -hmm. you know. Now, but the fact is I was occupied and be, it was an hour and a half until I saw the message because I was at a dinner and I had turned my phone on, off. Was this the dinner of the first night? Uh, yeah, when yeah. Fitch was... Uh, so so uh, I had an experience, and the experience was I called back. Oh, we've got somebody, So, but we may want you for the later hour. Can you do it? I said, yeah, if it's not too late, but I don't want to lose sleep over Fitch. Yeah. You know, well... I, I thought of... At first you said Fish, but Fitch. Fitch, Fitch. <laughs> yeah, the downgrade. So... Everything that happens now is drives 
response. That has, that has added another dimension. Response can't be always thoughtful, accurate, and comprehensive in 11 milliseconds. Doesn't work that way. The second thing is that now has put the news distribution business into instant response all the time. What if they don't have anything to say? So they have to make it up. And I think there's a third element which may be more nuanced. Some things are more important than other things. They may require a deeper analysis, some thoughtful research before you draw inferences or conclusions. Other things may not require that. So Coca-Cola's earnings are very important, but they're of minor importance in the scheme of things unless they're a very significant surprise. And you can say that for 4,000 companies from Amazon to companies we don't even know their names. So uh, the circumstances have changed. I still like this discussion, as you have seen, because you've been involved in them, where you have some <coughs> researched, thoughtful debate tonight on the deck chat, which, because of the wind, is going to be inside mm. instead of outside. I want to delve into the full costs of the debt ceiling debacle. Now, I wrote a paper, you may have seen it, and it looks as if the 10-year the cost of this debt ceiling crisis, a created crisis, no one can say it was necessary or it was required by law, it was a political impasse crisis created by politicians. The, the long-range cost is somewhere between $300 billion and a trillion. That's the range of estimates. My estimates and all the methods about that are in that paper for anybody who wants to take the time to read it. So am I wrong and it's $250 billion, mm -hmm. Or am I wrong and it's a trillion, $200 billion? Does it make a difference? The costs of the debt ceiling crisis are four, five, six, seven, or ten times the estimates that were used to create it. We saved nothing. What we did is we imposed a burden on the entire economy of the United States. And the only way it could be reversed, in my opinion, is for Congress to pass a law that says if we appropriate it and the president signed the law, so they all got to agree, if we appropriate it, after that, the finance and refinance of that debt is guaranteed and cannot be held up by a political process. That would be the embellishment of the 14th Amendment that didn't happen. I think that is a very prudent solution. And yeah, it does strike me as somewhat silly that the Congress always has to go through this process. When you said the cost of the debt ceiling, uh, please remind us of the figures you use. 
how did you uh, reach that conclusion? Was it the increase in the interest expense? Was it the expansion of the deficit itself? By the way, we have an eagle right over our head, full-grown bald wow. eagle flying wow. right over I hope our that head. Appears, I hope that appears in the shot. Yes. Uh, that, it oh. took a lot of doing to get that eagle yeah, to fly yep, here yep. now, you know. You had a falconer and it just released it. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, so, so it was a, the increase, rise in the increase expense, uh, increase in the deficit, or is it the sort of psychic scarring, the scarring of, to the reputation of the U.S.? Uh, well, the re we, we've had now four occasions to test this. 1979, we had an accident in a payment. We can go look at the market then, use market-based prices, and say what happened to interest rates of Treasury securities when there was an accident, was not intentional, was no political design. Rob Westcott did some good work on that. There was a spike in short-term interest rates. His calculation estimate midpoint was about a 60 basis point excess cost in short-term treasury finance from the accident. That was 1979. Now we had a debt ceiling crisis in 2011. We can track and see the changes in prices in treasury securities at all maturities, and we can track and see the changes that occurred in credit insurance or credit default swaps on the United States. We didn't have those tools in 1979, but we had them in 2011, and we had them again in 2013. So we could see it two years apart, and we just had them again. So we have three data points, and a fourth, which is sort of historical. If you take the three data points, 2011, 2013, and 2023, you can track the excess interest rates, mm. meaning what were the treasury yields and the credit default swap costs during the period of the run-up and intensification and afterwards. And what we find is each time, each event, the excess yield was worse, higher, a bigger spread, and the damage in the intermediate and long end of the treasury curve grows in each event. In 2011, it disappeared. 2013, it was marginally changed, a couple basis points. This time around, it's 10, and the market is already pricing in in 2025, a replay of this nonsense, because that's the expiration date. So what does that mean? If credit default swaps cost more, if the cost of finance of all federal paper, 27 trillion worth, is more, and does it impact, this is an unknown, I'm going to ask everybody for an opinion tonight, does it impact uh, other types of dollar-denominated paper. Some, definitely yes. Others, I'm not sure. Does it change the cost of an auto loan? I don't know. Does it change the cost of a mortgage? You betcha, because mortgages are driven for most people by Fannie Mae and Ginny Mae and Freddie Mac, and they have been downgraded too. So that's the part of the discussion tonight we are accelerating the pace of this process 
and intensifying it each event. So it's nonlinear, has a curve, and it's an upward sloping curve. And I don't know. I estimate that the excess interest rates in the short end of the Treasury curve, we have another one of these in 2025, could reach 100 basis points. That's huge. So we had some very weird pricing uh, earlier this year, as, as you alluded to, where uh, there was worry that bills would not be paid on time and their, their yields went up significantly. Uh, and this was on the very, very short end of the, sure. the curve. And would you, you know, so you're as you know, folks can tell and folks know you're a veteran of, of the bond market, you know, referencing what, what occurred in 1979. I didn't know about that. But uh, would you say that the risk there perceived is not that creditors of the U.S., people who own U.S. Treasury paper, will not be paid back at all. It will be that they will be paid back on a timeline that is different than what they agreed upon. So in other words, it will be a late payment, not a lack of a payment. Well, here's, here's the actual trigger. In my paper, which is available free for anybody who wants to read it we'll on my website. We'll include a link in the description, yeah. Yeah. So in my paper, I reproduced the language in the payment agency notice that went out when we were very close to X date. And that was the catalyst for the deal. And what that language said to every paying agent in every place in the world that handles a US dollar denominated payment. Now think about what I just described. There are thousands and thousands of such agents and we're one of them because we're a bond manager. So we got the paying agency notice. And here's what it said. It said, we are approaching the date. We don't know what's going to happen because nobody did. And we will not automatically post the payment on a federal piece of paper anymore on the date we will wait until cash is received. That disrupted the entire payment mechanism and reporting mechanism of the world. This is the world's reserve currency. And the paying agent said, we're not going to automatically post because there's a chance we won't get the cash. And then we've got to reverse it on you. And if you use that cash, you, it, you don't have it. So you can't use it. The next day, the next day, Biden and McCarthy shook hands and said, let's have a deal. Why did they do that? Because the phones lit up in every congressional office and in the White House and every financial intermediary said to their congressman, you idiot, you are not only an idiot, you swallowed your lollipop <laughs> and you're going to throw the entire system into default. Stop. And the people who said that were Republicans and Democrats and liberals and conservatives and, and no labels and other labels. I don't care what you want to call them, because what they said, if I can be blunt on your show, please. Enough of this crap. This is really serious. And when an, the phones light up like that, things change. That's what it's got to take. That is a hell of a way to have to run the financial system of the United States. It's disastrous. It's debilitating. So what are the markets are saying? Markets are saying Fitch is right. 
Standard & Poor's is right, not because the United States doesn't have the ability to pay. It doesn't have the willingness to give us a systemic cure. And we're missing the systemic cure. We sit here on this deck, and all we know is we've got less than 24 months to the next debt ceiling crisis. And every dollar-based payment in the world is already preparing for a contingency they don't want. The interview you're watching right now was filmed at the legendary Camp Kotak, an invitation-only retreat with prominent investors, economists, and wealth managers. Fishing, wine, and conversation are the hallmarks of this annual event held at Lean's Lodge in Grand Lake Stream, Maine, one of the state's most remote venues. I was very lucky to go to week one of this year's Camp Kotak, and I'm very grateful to David Kotak for inviting me and to Daniel DiMartino Booth for helping me greatly in being granted access to this exclusive event. Camp Kotak attendees are bound by Chatham House rules, where participants are free to use the information received, but neither the identity nor the affiliation of the speaker, nor that of any other participant may be revealed. Accordingly, most of the information I heard will stay concealed. However, I did manage to get a few participants on the record, so Forward Guidance viewers will be able to hear my interviews with, among others, David Kotak, Daniel DiMartino Booth, Jim Bianco, Sam Rines, Leland Miller, as well as Dennis Lockhart, who from 2007 to 2017 served as the President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. A big thank you to the Global Interdependence Center and Cumberland Advisors for making this event possible, as well as to Lean's Lodge for sharing their beautiful acreage and making us feel right at home. Now, back to the interview. And when you say preparing for that contingency, what do you mean? Earlier, you referenced that uh, the markets are, we look at a certain spread that's indicating a worry, a concern about 2024. Can you elaborate on that, please? So uh, credit default swaps are the pure market-based price. They're denominated in euro. You cannot denominate a credit default swap in the currency mm -hmm. that you're responsible for. Interesting. I didn't know that. So they're euro-based pricing. They're available on a Bloomberg terminal every minute. I look at them every day. And they say, this is what a market of buyers and sellers, bid and ask price, are now clearing for a payment credit default or credit failure of the United States. Whether it's a one-day failure or one-year failure, there are all sorts of maturities. And they are pricing the risk. And they're right. The risk is not zero. And in fact, the pricing is about 11 or 12 basis points higher now than it was in January of this year before all this nonsense started. That's a Thank you for clarifying. So you're referring to the uh, U.S. sovereign, U.S. Treasury uh, credit default swap. What uh, are in the market of, of credit default swaps for U.S. Treasuries? Is it primary, uh, you know, speculators who want some sort of hedge for other asset classes, or they own stocks, but they this is going to get, they're going to get a really explosive sort of uh, convex return, or is it users of bonds? Because I, I find it very difficult. Uh, I mean, U.S. Treasuries are all the problems that you mentioned. They are, you know, the global pristine asset class. And I'm not so sure about pristine anymore. Okay, There's okay. a little mud in the water. I should now. have said most pristine, or yeah. you know, the least dirty shirt in the, in the laundry. Well, uh, that too is now subject okay. to debate. But, uh, but to understand a credit default swap, you have to say, well, who would use such a thing? Mm -hmm. Well, it's not necessarily that default is permanent. Time is an element. 
So if you want to have protection for a certain amount of time and you're in a second derivative transaction, you hedge it. So credit default swaps are, I'm sure there are speculators. Mm -hmm. Of course, any market has speculators. But credit default swaps also have users. The derivative side of the of world finance, which is roughly 600 trillion notional, part of the intricacies of uh, transactions includes securing counterparty risk. So there's no default. And if there is a default, you're covered with an insurance. That's what a credit default swap really is. It's a form of a market-based insurance policy, which says you'll get paid and you'll get paid on time. Both elements. I don't think anybody thinks the United States will permanently default. They might, we might down the road some way, but it's not likely. But if you're not paid on time, that's a big deal. And so what is the, the situation that you fear? What does that look like? Does it go as far as another currency becomes the global reserve currency or a return to the gold standard perhaps? Or is it the dollar is, remains the world's currency, uh, but it is just its reputation is blemished and that blemish becomes more apparent over time and that can be seen in a variety of marketplaces? Well, you know, Hemingway had a wonderful line in The Sun Also Rises. And the question was asked, how did you go bankrupt? <laughs> and and the, the answer was, slowly, gradually, then suddenly. <laughs> and the, we're in the slowly. And we're, we're not behaving like good citizens. And we're not exercising good judgment. And it's now hurting us. And what we have is a diffuse distribution of cost. So if you go to a, somebody who bought a house for $400,000 and they got a $350,000 or $300,000 mortgage and they're going to make a mortgage payment for the next 30 years and you were to say to them, the Congress of the United States has implemented policy or failed to and your mortgage payment for the next 30 years is $57 a month higher then it has to be because of these idiots. That person would get upset about it, but they don't see it. Mm -hmm. They buy the house. They get the mortgage. They see what it is. They say, I have no control over this, and that's my mortgage payment. And that's why you have a disconnect between the <clears throat> victim, I call the victim, taxpayers and citizens in the United States, and the perp who is a member of Congress who's inflicting this pain on the entire country. Right. And that, that would be on uh, home buyers who the interest rate has gone up uh, for because the Fed raises rates, the Fannie Mae, tre Treasury. Sure. Thing. But people who, have, who you know, got a mortgage at uh, 3% 2020, they're fine. They got it locked in. Well, if you locked in a mortgage, you locked in a mortgage. Yeah. It's not just Treasuries. I'll give you an example. This is a live example. That happened this week. There's a, a market in the United States called the municipal bond market. It finances every airport, hospital, and housing finance agency, 90,000 issuers in the United States. 
You want a sewer plant? You sell immunity. You have 90,000. 90,000. 90, I had no idea it was that high. Wow. Yeah. And, and they range in size from the state of California to a fire district here in Maine that borrows once every 20 years for a fire truck in a fire hall. So they're, they're diverse. But the United States operates its state and local government sector. Because of the municipal bond market. One of the sectors is the housing finance agencies of the various states. Last week, Arkansas Housing Authority did an issue, a muni issue. That muni issue was secured by a basket of mortgages. All those mortgages were Fannie, Freddie, FHA, or Ginnie Mae. They were all indirectly guaranteed by the United States of America, and they were all subject, or the issuers were all subject to a downgrade by Fitch. We bought an entire tranche, tranche, I have to say it correctly. The French way. That's right. Well, who was it? I think it was George Bernard Shaw said, uh, the French don't care what you do as long as you pronounce it correctly. So, we bought the entire tranche, as much as we could, of a long-term, tax-free housing agency bond rated AA plus or AA minus, something like that. The whole collateral basket was federal. The yield was 4.9 tax-free on the same day at the same time, the 30-year U.S. Treasury taxable was 60 basis points lower. Wow. Now. And that, that was a, of a comparable duration? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So on a dur- duration calculation, yeah, yeah. these were very similar, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is, as you know, technically the right way to do it. So I say, okay, for us, this is a gift. We have clients. I call a client on the phone. I said, I just bought you. A United States-backed tax-free bond at 60 basis points higher than the taxable United States bond. And they said, how can that be? I said, because we have idiots in the Congress and they, they don't understand or are unwilling to realize what they've done. So what is it, the reaction? My client says, good for me. You did your job. What this is saying is we are transferring to the savers who are wealthy, a windfall because of this congressional lunacy. And who's paying the windfall? The poor guy who's trying to buy a house for his family. Now, I'm in the business of investing money for the wealthy people. So when I get a bond like this and put it in their portfolio, they're happy. I don't blame them. Mm -hmm. I would be happy too. And you're happy that you you did it. I did my job. But as a matter of policy, should we enrich the richest by a congressional action, which is totally unnecessary? It's a created crisis and impose it on tens of millions of Americans. That's what the Congress did in the debt ceiling fight. They have a way to appropriate. They have a budget mechanism. They have a way to do it. Do it. Do your job. Stop screwing around. Does putting all of this together, 
how does that impact how high rates need to be or how, how high uh, they, they can go or to the extent that they, they might be too high? Uh, you know, is all the issues that you said compatible with 5.5% short-term interest rates, which is where we are now, or you know, they're lower on the longer, longer out, uh, or is the issue so bad that it requires some uh, easing of interest rates? So all interest rates nominally are a transfer between a borrower and a lender. If you don't borrow, you don't care what interest rates are. If you don't lend, you don't care what interest rates are. So if you have savings, you care what interest rates are. So interest rates are the mechanism to price the transfer. If you have a trajectory which is higher, you benefit the people who are receiving the interest rate at the detriment of those who are paying. You mentioned the short-term interest rate, 5.5%. That's a short-term policy rate. It, where it'll be a year or two from now, we don't know. Why it's where it is, we know what the Federal Reserve tells us, what they're doing and why they're doing it. And we know how the markets are dealing with it. We can look at repo, we can look at liquidity functions, we can look at short-term lending, we can look at floating rate debt. We, we can say, okay, this is what it means. The 30-year home mortgage interest rate hits 74 what does that mean? And so while short-term interest rates might move around, the impact on the real economy is that 30-year home mortgage interest rate at 7.4 or that auto loan or the cost of a vacation. That's where the real impact hits. And when you disrupt the mechanism, which is what the debt ceiling fight did, you make the impact worse. And when Fitch downgrades, the world didn't come to an end. We went fishing. Yeah. Okay. But Marshall Stocker said it well in our, yep. me- in our meeting. He said, it's another negative in a list of negatives. So one can look at the trajectory and say we have sequential negatives. That's not good. It's better to have sequential positives. Now, I, if I can have one minute. Please. I'm a defender of the Federal Reserve, which has been attacked at this gathering and other gatherings a lot. What did the Federal Reserve do? It used a very unusual technique when it had three sequential bank failures. The total of the three was greater than Washington Mutual was roughly 600 billion. What did it do? It, it said to the FDIC, you seize the bank, that makes you a federal agency. We then can lend to you as a federal agency so you can resolve and cure the deposit issue because we don't want to put 500 companies and all their employees into bankruptcy tomorrow morning Mm -hmm. by having the deposit failures. What good does that do? So why did the Fed do that? Because the FDIC has a hundred billion credit line at the U.S. Treasury, but the U.S. Treasury is dealing with a debt ceiling cap. 
So it can't go sell $100 billion worth of treasury bills to fund the FDIC's credit line. Was this called the Exchange Stabilization Fund? Yes. Okay, yeah. So, so, so you, you think about the FDIC, and the FDIC says, look to the Fed, we'll pay you back. And by the way, they are doing so. Mm-hmm. And the FDIC said, lend to us. And the Fed said, we can't lend to you until the assets are held by you as the receiver. So the minute they became the receiver and we had to have an approval process that the first time was FDIC and then Federal Reserve and then Treasury. So you need three parties. That's why it took six hours. Mm-hmm. Second time, it only took six minutes. But they had it. This is the first. The Federal Reserve saved the country from a meltdown contagion. Applause, please. Yeah. Not criticism. And the bank term funding program did a lot as well. Yes. So you think about what does the, we bash the Fed, they can't fight back. My view is the Congress gets away with this murder because they know the Fed they like to criticize is there to clean them up after they uh, spoil their diapers. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's a really interesting theory. I think there's, there's definitely something to that. Yeah. Um, wow. Uh well, David, uh, we should leave. I could, I could do this for very long, but you, you are needed, uh, I believe, at 6 o'clock. So what time, five, five what minutes time, ago. Five minutes ago, yeah, we, we need we to cut go. it off. Okay, David, yes. thank you so much for uh, doing this, inviting me, and uh, thank you, everyone, for watching. Nice. Nice to be with you.